Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Previously on Mentally Yours. It's really difficult if you are a gay kid because I think a very common experience is you'll be bullied for it before you even realize it yourself. And then there's a stage where a lot of people are trying to hide it because they're scared and they, you know, they, they, they're in fear of their lives, really, thinking they're going to be bullied or outed or what will it mean. And I think the difference between some other bullying is that it's very vocally addressed by teachers. Not, not all teachers, but there's a general understanding that bullying's bad. And we must stop it and we can talk about it. If you're being bullied, come and tell a teacher or tell your parents and we will deal with it. Whereas if you're lesbian or gay or bisexual specifically or trans, then to, to tell a teacher or to tell your parents is to out yourself. You might not be, be comfortable with that yourself or you might be really frightened about the reaction from parents. And often, you know, teachers still say homophobic things. Parents, you know, parents still kick their kids out of home for being gay. You know, there, there is still – so it's, it's, it just feels very, very dangerous, and I, and I understand why some of these kids feel very, very isolated. It's mentally yours from Ellen and Yvette. Focus on your mental health, you surely won't regret. It's mentally, 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 mentally yours. Mentally yours. Mentally yours. Welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly podcast on all things mental health. I'm Ellen. And I'm Yvette. And this week we're going to be chatting to Rihanna Walcott. She's a writer, PhD researcher and an activist. She's also the editor of mental health anthology The Colour of Madness. We're going to be chatting to her about women of colour and mental health, racism and her new book. I first started writing and talking about this because I was at um, University of Edinburgh. Well, I did a year abroad when I was up there and that was when I first started experiencing anxiety and depression and I didn't really have a word to put to it at the time. It was like, I remember I had a panic attack and I was like, what the hell was that? And then, you know, like a long time later, I'm like, ah, I see a panic attack, you know. So um, that was a few years ago and I just didn't really do anything about it because this is like a large part of the reason why the book came about. There's not really much in the way of language to talk about mental health in like a lot of black and brown communities there's not the like the the support structure or the understanding of it like there's a lot of teaching to be done 
and like whilst there's a lot of talk that happens amongst like people of my age group in our kind of community it's not really happening with the older generation so I didn't really know what to like what was going on or anything and then I found that because I was at Edinburgh University which is like a very predominantly white institution when I went in to try and get some help and you know, um, because I was really high functioning and achieving really highly, they kind of were like, you're fine. Like, in fact, I was told, um, so I went in, <laughs> I went in in my final year, my master's year to go get some help because like, I was like, enough's enough. I need to go get some counseling or something. And she said to me, she was like, yeah, you seem to be all right. Go take a bath and like see how that does. And I was like, wow, take a bath. Like, first of all, mm. ouch. <laughs> like, mm. like, like I, I, I do that. <laughs> but also like, oh, have a bubble bath and then like, you know, see how that works out for you. And I was like, well, that's just such a poor, like if that's what you're telling students, like what hope do we have? And then obviously what followed was just a really shitty semester for me, like a really awful thing that almost cost me my PhD place. So, you know, that's the sort of thing that's, that's happening and then the support structures aren't necessarily always there to recover from when you know when things go wobbly because you've had like some problems with your mental health so really the work I do is more about first of all giving people of color a voice to talk about something that they're not used to talking about and then secondly like working with those institutions to hopefully make it a little bit more hospitable to people of colour who are having mental health issues. So when you first reached out um, was that to the university's counselling service, mm-hmm. did you ever go back? I eventually, one good thing that happened was I was referred to this other counselling service called Sahelia, which is run for and by black and brown women. So that was fantastic. In the end, I did end up with um, an Indian counsellor, which was a lot a lot better. And now, now I'm at King's. I basically like make it my rule that I don't speak to white counsellors anymore. Like I will actually like preferably only talk to black women because it it makes such a huge difference. Why is that? What are the differences? So I've faced some pretty like outright racism from white counsellors who aren't, you know, who are like doing their best. But when you're in a space of such extreme vulnerability and you're going in there to talk about your problems, it is the one space that I really cannot deal with like microaggressions and explaining. So if you have to go in and explain that thing, that this is what racism is, that's just so draining and you have to do that all the time. You shouldn't be having to do that in your, to your counselor. So, so I know about how to present myself. And I think this is a thing that most black and brown women will know about, particularly darker skinned black women. There is a way that you have to present and articulate yourself if you want to be taken seriously or if you want to be believed. So first thing first, like how I'm talking right now, right? So there's a manner of code switching that happens. And so whenever I went to go see a counsellor at Edinburgh, I would make sure before this point, before this point of getting this counsellor, I would make sure that I cried because it was the only way that like, without expressing that sort of visible, tangible vulnerability, they weren't really taking me seriously, like, because I think that the image of, like, the strong black woman who sort of gets on with it and achieves anyway is so powerful that they couldn't see past that to actually see my distress. And then this one time that I didn't cry, I get sent away and told, then you're actually okay, go take a bath. And I understand that university counselling services are incredibly overstressed. Like, that is a problem of funding. 
But in that moment, it was a very dangerous thing that happened to me there. That's like, you know, I couldn't bear to think of that happening to other people. So luckily they sent me to Sahelia and, um, you know, they gave me this leaflet for Sahelia and services like that that are run by and for people of colour are just so important because they're not going to... You don't have to explain why something hurt. So if I'm going into class and I'm dealing with something that seems maybe small to a person who's never had to deal with it, who doesn't understand how these things build up. And then I'm having to go, actually, that was racism. Like, I know you don't get it, but it was. That's, that's like just not a nightmare. And then I've had like similar experiences on the other side of the spectrum where I was talking to a white counselor at um, another institution. And she just was <laughs> like, when I, when I think back to it, it was just, awful i should really report her to be honest because there was loads of stuff like it was too far the other way so obviously i'm a black caribbean woman and i think she was trying to like kind of overcompensate by reading her narrative of what my distress should look like so she was asking me all these like i know that there are questions that counselors have to ask but it made me deeply uncomfortable. She's asking stuff like, is your dad still part of your life? And like, do you know your grandparents? What island are you from? Like, did you have a difficult birth? Did your mom take, you know, was your mom on drugs or alcohol? And you, you know, and it was just, just shit like that. Like, and you know, oh, what, what, what made you like this kind of thing? <laughs> and I was like, okay. So she asked me, when was the first, your first experience of racism? And first of all, that is just the whitest question I've ever heard because no black counselor, no woman of color, no person of color would ever ask another person of color like what experience of racism made you upset because it's it's a daily pile on like it, it's a stupid question like what happened 20 minutes ago like, this is the dumbest question ever so she asked me this and i was like kind of thrown i was like i don't know what you want from me here it felt kind of voyeuristic even it was like do you want me to like unpick every time someone's called me the n-word since i was three like i don't know what to tell you and i sort of started my like typical lecture mode and I kind of went well obviously I went to a predominantly white school and I understand now like whilst at the time I didn't have the words to articulate that what I was experiencing was microaggressions or racism but now I can see the institutional pressures and blah 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 and she cut me off and she said I didn't ask you for a lecture I asked you for a tangible moment of racism and I was like well then you don't get it and mm. there's no point in continuing this conversation because if you could if you think that there is one moment of racism that has made me depressed then you literally can't possibly understand what it's like to walk through this world as a black or brown person and you will never understand me so why should i talk to you any further and what was even interesting there was that she she really she seemed to think that the fact that we were both women made there were meant there was a link there so i was like i'd written on several forms that i only wanted to speak to a black or brown person and she was like well we're both women we have a rapport i'm going to continue seeing you and i was like nope so i had to take it higher i had to make a complaint because the way i see it is if i'd been a woman who'd asked not to speak to a man because i wanted to talk about like assault or mm. whatever then they would never have said well we're just going to stick you with this guy because that's the way it is they, they would always try to match you up with a counselor of your preferred gender so why why is that any different if i'm in there to talk about race i think a lot of people still don't understand that it is the daily microaggressions and the built-up things that do have an impact on your mental health yeah can you explain a bit about 
it's a kind of a really simplified question. Why does that and how does that affect people with mental health, just living that experience? Well, um, one thing that my co-editor Samara said is um, whilst mental health doesn't discriminate, we're in a society that does. So, and this is something I think about quite a lot because um, when you are a black person or a person of colour or any marginalised person for any reason, for your gender, for your class or whatever, then you are experiencing life on like a handicap level. Like there is, um, things are slightly harder for you to get to get to where you need to be. Like you are, you know, everything's a little bit more difficult. So if you're constantly having to like battle through that, then of course that's going to take a toll on your mental health. Like if you imagine everyone starts out with like, and also you can be like genetically um, inclined to this sort of thing anyway, right? You can have a history of mental health in your family and that might be part of it. But the point is like, if you are, you know, going through life with um, with barriers in your way already, then and that other people can't even see or acknowledge, that's even worse, you know? Because I often think that as a, like, I was really grateful that as a child, like, my parents were kind of like, this is how it's gonna be, you're black. Like, and that was like really important to have that articulated because it's this great lie that we're in a meritocracy where it doesn't matter. And I know a lot of people are gonna listen to this and be like, well, you're doing a PhD, but like how many of us are there? Like, I'm one of, very few people who managed to get funding from my funding body. I go there and it's a sea of white kids who went to Oxbridge. Like, the numbers don't, you know. So, yes, of course, I've done it, but it's this huge uphill battle. So, and when people, like, lie and say that's not true, it's just how much you work, that it, in itself, like, mashes up your mental health because you're kind of like, oh, well, what is in my way? This seems, you know, and also the fact that it seems like there can only be a couple of you at the top. Like, lately... Like my diary's full of things like this, interviews and da da da, and I've been so lucky. But it seems like the the network, the group of like black successful creatives, it like whilst it's one of the most welcoming groups I've ever known, everyone's always trying to bring everyone up, and it's so supportive and wonderful. It does seem that in getting like mainstream news time or mainstream credit, there's only enough room for a few of us. And that that's rubbish. Like yeah. You've got to pass on the, you know, pass the baton and let other people take on different opportunities and stuff. But so when you point to people and you say, Oh, you can do it, like there's there's not that many of them. So Do you feel like you have to convince people that what you're experiencing is the truth? All the time. Yeah. yeah I would say so. But actually, for my own mental health, I stopped doing that. I just stopped talking to yeah. people who don't know. Like I, I I really thought I used to think it was like this was definitely a part of um, like why I was so anxious and stuff because I really thought my sort of brand of activism was that I had to convince everyone. I had to like, I was one of those keyboard warriors who were like in the Guardian below the line at four in the morning, just yelling at people. Like I'd, that was like a large part. Oh my God, what a mess. But like, I look back on that and I'm like, girl, you didn't have the time. You should have been sleeping. Like mm. you had assignments to write. Yeah, that's not but, good for anyone's yeah, mental health. Not, not good. That. So, um, you know, I think there's a case of like, you just have to decide where your work is best done. You know, like I've decided that the best work I can do 
is like working within institutions and because that's where money is and if i can redirect that stream of money to you know i think of it as reparations if i can redirect that stream of money to uplifting you know poc then i will but there's no need to convince everyone like not everyone's gonna like the projects i do not everyone's gonna like the work i do but so like they're not cutting me a paycheck so why should i care and that's been so much better for my health yeah i think especially if you're on the internet yeah what's helped you generally in terms of your mental health um, oh, yeah, I had that at one point. Yeah, yeah. 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 Do it. Got it. Well, I had it for Dust depression. Is that, is that for anxiety Dust, as well? Yeah, yeah. Anxiety and depression. Yep. Yeah. And um, yeah, well, yeah, I take antidepressants, which we should destigmatize. Mm. Um, How was your GP when you went to oh, them? Rude as hell. I have to fight them every time. Really? <laughs> Yeah, I actually I actually got to the point where I moved doctors because I was just like, look, I can't be doing this every time I need to talk about my mental health because it's just so poo. Like they, I have a whole rant about how um, like people of color are treated in um, doctor surgeries as well. Well, please, oh, this, this is the time to tell us. Free to rant. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, um, so I noticed something between the difference between the way that me and my dad are treated in doctor surgeries. So obviously, my dad's from a working class background, and I'm his kid who's got a couple of degrees. So I know, like, whenever we go to our doctors, and my dad has something that he like is concerned about, obviously. Uh, like preface this with like i understand the nhs is stressed and like love the nhs and everything but he the way that you are sort of turned over and turned out is very distressing um so he will go in and be like oh i i know something's wrong here but i um there are studies that show that people disregard black pain in you know in medical situations and the same thing reads with mental health the same thing with the way i've been treated so there's an uh, there there is an a belief that um black people in particular are more likely to overinflate their pain or overinflate what's happening to them which means that we get treated very differently at the gp than maybe our white counterparts do and I have an awareness of this. And when I go in, I make sure I talk, you know, I code switch into, excuse me, I have two degrees and this is what I need. And I'm, I'm going to need you to give it to me. And, you know, I've just been talking to my dad about like how often he has to go to get something actually seen to. And like the miss, you know, cause like, you know, he's not, it's, it's, it's you know, the way that you have, to, it, it doesn't seem like it should be a thing that you have to fight this hard to. And then when it comes to something as nebulous and, as um, maligned as mental health is, it becomes even harder. And I would find that it's, it's awful when you have to speak to different doctors because you have to just reel it out over and over again. And you have to strike that balance of I'm, I'm in pain, but I'm not in so much pain that you have to like section me. So, you know, it's really difficult to strike that balance and like to be able to use the correct keywords. In fact, Samara, my co-editor, who's a, a junior doctor now, she was saying that um, like a, a family member, when they needed to go to um, the doctors, she would give them a list of keywords that she needed that they needed to to name check when talking about their condition to make sure that they were taken. That 
That's really so, interesting so, coming from a doctor. This is the mm. thing. So she knows that this is what's happening mm. and she knows as a black doctor what the wards look like that she's working on and who who is on the wards versus who is, you know, who is the patient versus who is the practitioner. Mm. So that that was something that, that she's aware of. So, you know, this is... And this is something, again, that I'm, like, finding with, you know, the difference between me and my dad being able to go into these places and the importance of being able to code switch and the importance of, you know, but that's ridiculous because mm. not everyone who talks about mental health or not everyone with mental health issues is a mental health activist, yeah. you know? So what do you do if you're struggling and you've not... It's, it's an absolute nightmare. And, and if you're really if you're suffering... A person of colour, mm. if you're really suffering... You shouldn't be sort of then thinking about... Like, Anything how else? do I say this? How do I use the right words? Yeah. Yes. How do I reel this out so that they give me what I need? And like, and also when you get in there and they're trying to convince you that you don't need what you need as well. So I knew that my Cytalopram was working for me. I was like, this is bomb. Like, I needed to move up a dosage, but I was like, this is cool for me for now. I was doing it alongside therapy and everything, and I was like, this, is, this, is, this will be the one. And the way I had to fight with this doctor <laughs> like, I was just like you know she just thinks like I don't know like I was it was amazing because it was like you've known me for all of five minutes since I've walked into this room I've been dealing with this and talking to different doctors for years and years you think you can just say right now that like well maybe you should just go for a jog like oh, it might be something to do with your weight. Oh, oh my God. I <laughs> and I was like, girl, I'm not that big. Like, excuse me. So, you know, or it might be something to do with, like, stress from your studies or whatever. And I was like, please don't patronise me. Like, I know what I'm talking about at this point. Yeah. Just, yeah. Just, and, and was and that for, like, a top-up? So you were already... This is, this is what I'm saying. This is a top-up. It was me moving up 10 milligrams, which is really no That's thing. That's really strange. And it's, like, very... When you know you're going to have to do that every time, that's just such an extra strain that you don't mm. need. Mm. I'm sure it puts people off actually getting well, out. Definitely, Abs- yeah. Oh, my God. Because it's, sometimes it's such just a, a, such a struggle getting to see a, a GP in the first place, you know. And if you're depressed or, you know... Everything anxious. becomes harder anyway. Exactly. Just getting to the doctor is a difficult thing in the first place or, you know, like feeling like you can do it and then getting there and then, like, having to fight your corner. I mean... It, it seems it's a very cruel and strange thing to put a person who's going through that through and it's an experience that i've heard shared by lots of people that um are suffering from mental illness like that balance you have to strike to get help because mm. i think earlier you were saying you felt if like I didn't you cry, have to cry yeah. which is really interesting that you have to present as the right version the, yep of depressed or anxious. Ill enough. Yeah, <laughs> which is really strange yeah. how does race play into that as well because i feel like a lot of experiences i've heard is that um, pain and sadness we misread as anger. Oh yeah, that wow. So that's why it was very much cry. This is something I think about a lot, even outside of mental health, because sometimes, like as a darker-skinned black woman, I would make sure that I'm like it's easier to be treated nicely if I code more as like heavily femme, like high feminine. So you'll always see me with things like flowers in my hair or, you know, I have a very big, very, like, an afro that's very palatable. <laughs> you know, not the scary kind of afro. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, so that's definitely something I would make sure that I did when I was going, you know, I would 
because especially if I was talking to a white woman, it'd be like much easier if we could be like, we're both women, you know. But um, yeah, it's completely ridiculous. And you you do find yourself like, because there's a lot of things to be angry about. I'm angry all the time. But you certainly can't show that because, yeah, ang- you know, pain is often coded as anger. Like I actually talk about this in terms of like not being able to recognize trauma on a black face. And, you know, it's just crying is something that's very, you know, like it's heavily coded as feminine, but it's just something that I found was the easiest way to be weirdly enough taken seriously. Like it's not, it wasn't even like a, a pity movement move. It was like, excuse me, I'm in pain. Mm. So because I think a lot of times, like I could go in somewhere and scream and shout and they would recognize like, Oh, something's really wrong. Mm-hmm. But, if I went and just get a screenshot, I don't yeah, know like, what. Okay, I, leave. I'd be so god. Are you are you afraid that you might be? Yeah, that mm. would be such a stupid thing for me to do. That would, um, I think that would that would definitely elicit the wrong reaction from me, especially as a darker skinned black woman. That would not be, that would not be wise. Especially, it would not be wise to be seen that way within the institution that is going to be giving me my degree. Like it would not, it wouldn't be smart. And we know that black people and BAME people in the UK are disproportionately likely to be sectioned and institutionalized and criminalized for mental health. So I don't really want to, I don't really want to step on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I know, again, that's something that I know is easier for me because I'm a black woman, not, you know, just about, but um, because black women are obviously very regularly coded as masculine. So I really heavily lean on the woman part. I can see why. It all sounds pretty pretty terrifying to me. Because if you're in a place in your life where you're very feeling very vulnerable, you know, going through a mental health issue, we've all been there. Um, You've got issues with your emotions. Mm -hmm. You're then having to have another layer of managing those emotions when you're around the people that are supposed to be helping you. Just the amount of work that's going into it. It sounds exhausting. It's exhausting. And I think that, like... I'm not, I'm really reluctant to, because I was talking to someone else about this like about 20 minutes ago before this, but I'm really reluctant. It's not that all BAME people have mental health issues, but it is true that we all learn to manage ourselves in this way. This sort of double consciousness, name check, W.E.B. Du Bois. (laughs) That sort of double consciousness is intrinsic to the experience of being a person of colour in a majority white country or a majority white you know institution so that part is something we're all very familiar with what is wrong is that we have to maintain that even at our most vulnerable moments so that is of course something that stops people from getting help that and the fact that we don't talk about it in our own communities even like these kinds of conversations don't happen so you'll find that's something that was so lovely about this book it was like people were talking about we were all having the same experience. Like I could probably say what I'm saying now to, you know, another black friend who's gone to to see the doctor and we would have the exact same experience. And it would be something that like would be a huge relief to put into, to articulate that that, that actually happens, that this is real and this is something we've both noticed, you know? Mm-hmm. Like it, it's it's very, it feels very isolating when you think about it happening to just you but at least we know that there's a problem and it's real and we're not making it up and we know that 
when I have to, when I made that decision, when I make that decision to cry, make that decision to allow myself to cry. That's probably a better way of putting it. When I allow myself to cry in that moment, that is a choice that I had to make and a choice that I know that any other black woman in my position would also make. Mm. So I'm not alone in that, that there is a problem there. I'm not making it up. There is a problem because we're all doing it. Can you tell us a bit more about the the book in general? Are there any particular stories that stand out for you? Obviously, it's a project that came about when I was doing a talk about BAME mental health up at Edinburgh for Creative Scotland. And my publisher, Tabitha Sterling of Sterling Publishing, <laughs> was was in the audience. And she came up to me afterwards because I was on a panel. Um, it was myself and three white men. And we were talking about mental health. And interestingly enough, even though I probably actually did have the most mic time, I think, everyone was like, you didn't get enough time to speak. I think the reason for that is because those three white men had very similar things to say. And it was like very, it, it, the optics of it were so unequal yeah. that it seemed like being a woman and being a black person was underrepresented. But anyway, so we agreed after that, that there was more to be said. And we decided that the best way to do that was using this anthology, um, The Colour of Madness. The title was um, mildly controversial for a minute, but we um, actually put it to a focus group of over 100 BAME-identifying people to choose, and this is what we landed on. And the reason why we said The Colour of Madness is because the book follows a colour spectrum. So from start to finish, like it's the visible light spectrum. And the chapters are broken up into Richard of York gave battle in vain, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. And they all represent different aspects of mental health. So like red is for like anger, yellow is about mania and, you know, and joy and orange is confusion. Green is for relationships. Blue is the institutional chapter. So we've got pieces in there from practitioners and um, patients. Um, indigo was about deep depression and violet was about um, spirituality and religion. I so, love anyone who's really academic and references their quotes and then is like, red, orange, yellow. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's just my yeah, favourite thing. That's how we, it. how we did it in school. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so it's been really beautiful. We've got this wonderful mix of authors and artists because it's like, poetry memoirs interviews short stories and and art so what was really important to us is because obviously Samara and I are from this academic background it was super important that it didn't just become something that was all our uni mates talking about their experiences of depression even though that would have been of course incredibly valuable because that's but we really tried to make sure we had this huge mix of age and background and gender and sexuality and class so, um, yeah, we're, we're very proud of it. Uh, there's quite... It's difficult to pick a favourite because it's been such a labour of love for everyone. One that I'm thinking of right now is called To Braise the Belly Right, and it's a really beautiful poem by Min Ying Huang. And so, trigger warning, it covers uh, self-harm, but it's so beautifully written. And when I was... Um, when we were starting this book, it was one of the first pieces that I got to when I was going through, you know, rejecting and accepting. And I went, this person gets it. This is exactly what we were looking for. It has this perfect tender mix of like 
being specifically about like culture and also about difficulties and like wrapping that up in something that's so personal but also relatable but not relatable to me and I thought that was really important about it like it's none of these so some of these pieces cover things that are unflattering culturally unflattering or unflattering about themselves or but none of them that's not important and it's definitely like what's so great about the book is that it doesn't cater to a white gaze as so many books do it's like definitely by and for and about the people in that book so there's so many different cultures and communities covered by it and they're all so painfully honest and they're not you know whether they're they're just it really centers the people of color in a way that lots of narratives around mental health don't like they definitely talk about us as the other the, you know the dangerous you know mentally ill black person who's been locked up or whatever and it's it's really lovely to have that humanity put back for us Thanks very much to our guest, Rihanna Walcott. If you've been affected by any of the issues we've been chatting about today, please give the Samaritans a ring on 116123. They're also online at samaritans.org. You can join us online on Facebook. We have a group called Mentally Yours. On Twitter, we're Mentally Yours, spelled Y-R-S. Thanks very much to our producer, Sam Bonham, and to Lucy Baker for the jingles, and also to our wonderful guest. See you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 